0: is we continue on this series called more grace uh, for the journey and um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, really the the entirety of the chapter 16 verses so I'm going to read these and then we'll take a look at those together if you want to follow along uh, certainly encourage you to do that but we have it up as well here on the, on the screen for you So here's what we read. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you, I take great pride in you, I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds, for when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you would given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God Intended, and so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent. In this matter, so even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or the of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged, in addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and You have not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of God. I pray he adds his blessing to it as we attend to it now this morning. Together, So just to remind you of uh, a little bit of the context here, Paul makes a reference to a painful letter. Now, Paul, it was a church planter. He went around when God got a hold of his heart and told others about the good news of Christ. Everywhere he could go, he would speak of that. And so he began planting churches. And one of those was in the city of Corinth, and Corinth was a metropolitan area, cosmopolitan, and he was calling people out of their lifestyles that were acceptable by Corinthian standards into something new and to better uh, life in Christ, and so he shepherded this congregation for some time and then left. They wrote to him with some questions. He'd heard about some moral failures on their part, so he responded in 1 Corinthians addressing some of their particular issues. Uh, along the way as well, and the book we have in front of us, Second Corinthians, many people think is actually the third letter. Uh, there's reference to a painful letter that was written here, even in this section, and he'd heard word of their continuing to have uh, issues. There was the divisions and 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 failures, uh, kind of left and right. So he decides that he's going to write and address the the problems that he sees in them, pretty pretty straight in a pretty f- straightforward way. Uh, This is before the era, of course, of texting and whatnot, so he's wondering how they're responding to this. I don't know if any of you have ever sent a text message to somebody that was maybe a little difficult or you thought might cause some controversy, and you keep waiting to see if they're going to reply, and maybe you even see the bubbles come up a little bit, and you're waiting for it, and it just disappear, and you're wondering, what is going on here, too? Well, Paul had that plus a little more time in between because they didn't have that, obviously, technology. So he's waiting to hear, how are you responding to the letter, the tard letter, where he calls them out on sin. He calls sin, sin. And he, he names them specifically. And, uh, and then he gets word from Titus, who had gone there, that actually they responded in the way they ought to respond to it when somebody comes and confronts them with something that they have fallen short and, and it's, it's, a, it's a response of what he calls godly sorrow. And they could have responded in another sort of way, worldly sorrow, but he, they didn't. And so he rejoices in that reality. And, and in verse 1 of this text, we see that he's already called them, and, and Drew was preaching on this last week, to a certain standard. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's a pretty high standard. Purify yourself uh, in, in body and in spirit. Anything that's keeping you from walking in God's way, there's there's something that we do with that as well. And so that's a bridge here to the way that they respond. And so many of Paul's letters, he points out some of the things that have been wrong, but here he applauds them for what they've done that is beautiful. It's a beautiful application of the gospel of grace. And so we have a lot to learn from this. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how many of you remember Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? If you, if you remember that show, it was probably popularized not just here, but in other places as well. There's, there's an assumed answer to that. Who wants to be a millionaire? I mean, most of you are going to say, uh, uh, me. Pick me, right? And there are very few people who say, nah, I'm good uh, with that too. Uh, so that's a question, and they're, they're playing on like a human, human desire, um, and, and there's other questions like that, too, that, that aren't the answers aren't quite as clear. And that's, that's the question today is, what do you do with your guilt and shame? I mean, we all would like to be millionaires, perhaps, but guilt and shame is something we all struggle with. What do you do with it? And Paul has the answer here, and really the Bible address, addresses this quite a bit. So we all know, or we have a sense, that we haven't lived up to some standard, Whether it's a standard that's been given to us by society or even just ourselves, we fall short of it. And God himself has given us a standard. That's what we believe too. And not a single one of us is measured up to it. So every single one of us stands guilty before the Lord. That's a little bit more of a Western concept. Shame and dishonor is maybe more from those of you maybe in Eastern cultures as well. That's why I include that. What do you do with it? If you feel the sting of guilt or you feel ashamed, what do you do with it? And and there are a couple of uh, solutions to it. We have different ways, things that we can do it. One thing you can do is just ignore it. Deny it. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But just pretend it doesn't exist. You don't feel guilty. You don't feel ashamed. You can take it out on yourself, right? Self-pity. Um, you can be the victim all the time of everything, perhaps. Uh, you can, can can try to do more uh, with it and make yourself right in some way. You can take it out on others. Hey, look, man, if I feel guilty, it's because of you. You're the one who's made me feel this way. And that can come out in all sorts of different manners as well. And, and maybe there are more options uh, I, I, as I reflected and considered this too that that's probably what we do and we'll talk more about what each of these kind of means but there's another option and you can take it to Jesus in repentance that's the biblical method you can all those other things eventually will not work one way or another but there's a biblical pathway you take it to Jesus in repentance and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more today. So typically, I try to take you know, a verse at a time, but I'm going to focus more today on this centerpiece of the text here where Paul talks about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And in verse, verses 10 and 11, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what wow. eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So let's talk first about worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, if you're taking not only this text, but kind of the bigger biblical picture in other places too, has some elements to it that will kind of help us discern whether or not we're engaged in that. So we've already set the stage. We do something wrong. It's, it's a, something that is, is out of accord with what God expects and wants from us. What do we do with that? How do we respond? Worldly sorrow's focus is on the self uh, primarily and others. I mean, that's, that's what it means by worldly sorrow. You're focused on this world only, what it means for me or what it means for you alone. Uh, and so it's very self, self-centered in that respect. It's focused on man. And the solution then, and we've already mentioned some of these, are things like denial, blame, indulgence, and penance. We're going to unpack that just a little bit. If you're engaged in worldly sorrow and this is the pathway you're taking, those are some of the ways you'll try to solve the problem. And there's evidence that you're doing it that way. And these are kind of the opposite in some respects of how the Corinthians respond, which he applauds them for. You you tend to be closed off. That is, you're hiding. There's a lot of self-pity. You can justify your sin, say it's okay. You get defensive. That can look all kinds of ways. You can minimize your sin. It's not that big of a deal. You can be bitter about it. You can have apathy, you don't really care, and ultimately uh, you're doubting. Am, Am I really a Christian, for example? Is God who he really says he is as well? And the result here is regret and death. Now it says worldly sorrow brings death, but the opposite, verse 10, is godly sorrow, which leaves no regret. So if you are mired in regret over mistakes from the past or even the present, then that's worldly sorrow. But there's another pathway, as we'll see. Now, ultimately, this can lead to death, and there's all kinds of ways that can work itself out too. But let's just think for a moment with those categories in mind about what these mean. The first is the focus on man, what we can do to solve the problem, or how others have put us in this place. So the solution going to be man-centered. And one of those you know, ways that we try to solve it is just denial. You pretend you aren't feeling guilty or shame and you stuff it down. You push it aside. You don't admit it to yourself. Or another thing you can do, perhaps, is just say, I shouldn't feel guilt. I shouldn't feel shame because it's really not that big of a deal. It's not much of a problem. So you're reconstructing morality. In other words, you say, you know what, society is making me feel guilty, so I'll create a new set of standards, which I don't feel guilty about. Just create a new morality. Decide to go by a different standard. This is one solution. Have you seen people do that? Maybe, maybe you have at times, especially if you feel it, you feel the weight of it. You're trying to wrestle with what do I do? The Corinthians certainly did that in the realm of sexual ethics. That's what First Corinthians talks a lot about. So, you know, they look around, they say, this is what the world's doing. Well, maybe we can do that here in the church, too. It's not that big of a deal. They're doing it, why can't we? And he's calling them out to something entirely different. The Israelites did this quickly. You know, Moses was getting the Ten Commandments. You know, the, the the kind of moral standard for what it meant to be the Israelites. And he was gone for a little while. And ironically, they create a new God, a new system of morality, as it were, before he even came down back from the mountain. This is, this is what we do. This is a man-centered response to guilt and shame. We can blame others. You can say, perhaps, I wouldn't be this way if they whoever they are were just nicer to me I mean they're mean so I deserve to be feeling this way maybe I'm behaving wrong because my wife isn't paying attention to me because the kids are a pain because the government isn't doing what it should because my boss because my teacher because my sister because my team I get that one Because big business, because the culture, because the church. And at the end of the day, I don't have to feel guilty. I'm this way because of someone else. They're the problem. And that's a signal you're likely experiencing worldly sorrow or indulgence. That's another one of the ways you try to solve the problem. Might as well feel more guilty or more shameful. I like the way guilt feels. (laughs) Something kind of nice about that. There's some pleasure to it. it. But it masks the real issue. It's immediate. And it may temporarily take away pain and hurt or regret. So why not just keep doing it? It's worldly sorrow. Or maybe you feel like you do want to change. You want to address the guilt and the shame so you follow a program Of penance, that's what we've put here too. You mean well, you want to change. So you say, tomorrow, I'm going to be different. Tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to change then. Give me another program. Give me a new job. Give me a new relationship. Give me new information. I can do it. Uh, But no amount of discipline or study or effort will ever be enough. Because in this approach, self is the only ground for hope and change. Again. But man's attempts always fall short. And so this is why often a vain pursuit of doing more, you know, getting more disciplined, being better, or maybe seeking an ecstatic experience, that's what follows. That's what penance is all about. And usually somebody who's seeking penance is just feeling sorry for himself or herself because the aim or the target is personal gratification or personal relief. That's the focus again. The main concern is her personal consequences. That's true for a lot of people when it comes to sin. You know, we we feel the sting of the consequences, but what we're trying to do when we change is to avoid the consequences. But the consequences aren't the real problem. The problem is you've offended And hurt somebody made in God's image. And in fact you've offended God himself. That's where you need to do the work. You're not sorrowful about the pain you've caused someone else. And certainly not for sinning against a holy and loving God. And so you continue on this cycle. And the end game for worldly sorrow is regret and death. Guilt and shame are burdens you cannot bear on your own. You can't do it. You try, and you, but you end up in the same place. Again, Judas was like that, right? He took the path of worldly sorrow. and his, his, He actually ended up dead, took his own life. He couldn't bear it. And there's all kinds of different versions of this. You know, there's, the Bible talks about a spiritual death as well. You're distant from God. You're distant from others. You're dead to real life as God has, God has intended it. And that's what worldly sorrow brings to you. Now, if I just describe it that way, I don't think, mo- I'm, I'm guessing most of us would think, yeah, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> I, I don't want to live in regret, and I certainly don't want to live in, in death and experience this as well. Is there another pathway? Yes, there is. This was what's so exciting about the, the message of the Bible. And the word that's attached to is repentance. And I don't think most of you, if you hear that, think, that's a cool word. Repentance. Most people when they hear that, they get the image of somebody standing and says, repent or you will burn. It's harsh and unbending and unyielding. But it's the pathway to real life. I mean, this is the biblical message. Actually, your worldly sorrow hasn't accomplished anything. Biblical repentance is an entirely different pathway. And its aim or its goal is the opposite of these things. Instead of regret and death, what you're going to end up with, then, if you start at the bottom, is joy. A life. Salvation. How do you get that? You engage in what the Bible calls repentance. You take your guilt and your shame to Christ. see, so you see the focus there is quite the opposite now. It's on God. And the solution... As we've talked about it's repentance. We'll talk more about what that means. And the evidence of it, that you're doing this, even within this text itself, if you just look at that, these Corinthians now are open. He says, make room for me in your hearts. He talks about how they've become open to him. They're being honest. There's a refreshment that comes along with that. There's integrity. There's a desire that they've even demonstrated for purity and truth. There's a zeal for justice. The so things that matter to God matter now to me. There's restored relationships. Isn't it beautiful how Titus is woven in here too in the context of this godly sorrow. He was concerned about the brokenness in their relationship. They respond with godly sorrow. And there's renewed there's relationships. They're honest with each other. They're, they're forgiving each other. And there's actually a confidence instead of a doubt that comes along with it. He says, I'm confident in you. This is what the pathway can yield. So biblical repentance, I would argue, is the only way to experience real, full, overflowing life as it is designed to be. Individually and collectively. It's one of the most remarkable ways in which you experience God's grace. So what is repentance? I, I tried to put some words to it and, 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 and explain it, and I, I made a couple runs at it, and then I remembered, oh yeah, people have written about this already. <laughs> and, you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is repentance unto life? And I compared my definition with theirs. Theirs is better. But it's got a lot of similar components into it as well. This is what it says in question 87. asks, what is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's a saving grace. This is something God is at work doing. You're being honest with God about your sins, and you're finding forgiveness in Christ. And with that foundation, seeking to make amends to those you've offended where you can. And endeavoring to live in newness of life according to God's word. That's basically what it is. And you can see maybe the difference between worldly and godly sorrow already, I hope. It's not self-effort. Our salvation and hope for restoration is found where? Is it in us? In what we do? It's found in Christ. And what he has done, that's the ground of the basis for any moving forward in this pathway. Our salvation, our hope for restoration is found in Christ. It's a saving grace. It's a work of the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And because that is true, we are free to be honest about our sin. I mean, biblical repentance gives us an opportunity to be honest about our sin. To be straightforward about Even the things that are most shameful in the right context. And that's what we see. We can name it. There's openness here in the Corinthian church. There's honesty. There's integrity. There's a desire for what is true. That's what biblical repentance looks like. Stop pretending that there isn't something going on. Psalm 32 verses 1 through 6 give a picture of this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions, said the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin." Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. I mean, here's an example of a psalm, a psalm of David who struggled with, you know, with sin. Some pretty profound ones, as, as you probably know. Um, but he's honest about it. He feels when he's not being honest before God and he's taking it on himself, his bones are wasting away. He feels like he's dying. And then he's honest with God. He's open about it. And what does he find in his honesty with God? Forgiveness. He can't move forward in life, not in his relationships, until he's honest about what's happened. But what will he find? Genuine repentance recognizes that we have to be honest with God. And actually, God himself is primarily the one we've offended he is the initial and primary focus. So David, again, when confessing his uh, adultery, says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. It's pretty interesting. The basis of mercy is God's love, not even just David. His compassion. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, most of you know what he's confessing there. He's confessing not just adultery, but he was complicit in murder. So do you think Bathsheba, against whom he committed adultery, is saying, oh, that's fine for you. You just confess that you sinned against God. You actually sinned against me too, right? And so what what we see is that If you start only with, I I, I would argue, the human realm, you may never get to the way you've offended God. But if you start with God, he's going to drill it down to show you how you've offended that person too. that person, whether they forgive you or or not, it's not going to have eternal consequences, but God will. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. His sin against Bathsheba was a sin against God, and godly sorrow recognizes how our sins reach every level. It doesn't exclude Bathsheba, but without acknowledging that, God himself has been sinned against, you end up only with worldly sorrow. And biblical repentance doesn't start or end there. Biblical repentance recognizes how powerless we are in ourselves to enact real, deep, sustainable change. It goes deep to the heart, the source of our self-reliance. And it pulls us out of self-reliance into reliance on God's Spirit. And here's another passage from Jeremiah. Starting in, in verse 5, chapter 17. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He'll be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But here's the contrast. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So we are not powerless if we're in Christ. We can change because God's Spirit is leading us and empowering us to do so. Yet because of our hearts, prone to deception, it's an ongoing process. This isn't just like, You repented once, you're in the kingdom, and now you just sail away into the sunset. This is an ongoing reality as the Holy Spirit begins to show us how deep our sin goes, how subtle it is. So Martin Luther, and some of you who have been to Discover Redeemer even heard this quote, said, All of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. And that can sound kind of burdensome, a little bit. But it's not. When Peter is preaching to the men of Israel, and he says, you know what, guys? You killed the author of life. That's not really a crowd pleaser in any circumstance, but certainly not then either uh, as well. But he says, own up to what you've done. You crucified this man. He was the son of God. He was the author of life. One of the greatest ironies. You killed the author of life. You're responsible. His blood is on your hands. But he doesn't end there. This is in Acts chapter 3. He says, repent then. What do you do with that? Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Biblical repentance leads to refreshment, to joy, salvation. You're forgiven. That's refreshing. Any, any Any other method you take... Maybe momentary, but it's not going to stick. This will. If you really want to be refreshed, you can't do it by pretending and hiding and justifying and beating yourself up through just all kinds of self-pity. How's that working for you? Not so great. There's another pathway. There's times of refreshing. Don't you want to be refreshed? But you have to be honest with God. You have to take it to him. Name it. Let him do his searching. And as that comes, take it to Christ and just say, Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Let me feel the sting and the weight of what I've done for sure, but then let me experience and know the beauty of forgiveness. And so much of what happens in this concept of biblical repentance is we're changed not only in terms of wanting to go this way, but now we go this way. Oftentimes we'll look back and say, how can I make amends for what I've done? That's different. Penance isn't, is not is another option, right? I'll do enough good for somebody that God, I earn God's favor. Repentance is very different than that. Because I have God's favor and he's forgiven me, now I can go back and look at how I can change some of the things that have been done. And one of the problems, of course, with living in time and space is that it could be that somebody you've hurt and offended is no longer around or not accessible. That's one of the wounds that can't fully be healed. And yet, at the same time, to the extent you can, that's what you endeavor to do. And certainly not to make a mess of things as you leave forward. That feels hopefully some opportunity for you to ask God to kind of shine the light in your heart and kind of leaning again on the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 15 that talks about repentance leading to life. And it's a longer chapter, but here's how it ends. Believers should not be satisfied with general repentance. Rather, it is everyone's duty to try to repent of every individual sin individually. There's a lot of individual stuff going on there, too. There's this kind of general repentance. But you, today, before the God who created you and knows everything and sees everything, if you're a follower of Christ, you should take this very seriously. Ask God's whole spirit to search and examine you and show your sin to you. And don't, don't just waste away in it. Confess it to him. Be honest about it with him. Confession prayer for forgiveness, and the forsaking of sins which have been forgiven, will find God's mercy. You will find God's mercy. But yours, then, is to confess it. Yours is to pray, God forgive me. Yours is to forsake the sins that you've been following. God can't obey the commands for you. But he will give you his Holy Spirit to enable you to obey them. And, of course, we recognize that with all of life is repentance. This is ongoing. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us. This is just a lead-in, in many respects, to the Lord's Supper. It's a table of repentance. Because on the one hand, we realize he, he, he died for our sins. You do have them. But the, uh, on the other hand, yet he's forgiven you. And yet, you continue struggling with sin, and, but his forgiveness is real and complete. So, if you need refreshment in your soul, by all means, take the Lord's Supper, but not until you've confessed your sins. Whatever they are that he brings to your mind, be quick to confess those. Ask him to show you. And if you're one of those people who's like, ah, I'm good, I got no problems whatsoever, you're out of touch. Well, you need God to show you what that looks like. And, and if he does, it could be a big thing or a small thing. Just make sure that you don't take this pathway of worldly sorrow. You know, Beat yourself up over and over again. That's not going to work. Take it to Christ. Here's the solution. It's pretty amazing, really, because I know we all need it. So it's available to you. And it could be the first time you've ever heard that. Maybe you're saying, okay, then I'm willing to lay down myself because I've been going this worldly sorrow route, great. We can rejoice with you. Don't let this moment pass. You know, even, even David says, the mighty waters will rise. You never know the time when it overtakes you. So make sure that you're honest with God now and find forgiveness in him. Or if you're somebody who just needs to let God do his work and, and shine in your heart, even in the smallest sort of way, be sensitive to that. I'm going to encourage us just to take some, some moments of self-reflection. Uh, Jill play the piano and, uh, and, and then after some time, um, as, as we pray, I'm going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. I'll give some more direction, but just let some of these verses and some of these challenges drive you toward godly sorrow, uh, which doesn't find its end until you've found forgiveness in Christ as well. So take some time to be honest with God this morning.